Welcome to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We hope the following program will challenge you and encourage you in your faith journey. Many of the modern ideas are totally bankrupt. The gospel is not only good news, it's the best news ever. You know, the culture we live in can be so divisive and contentious that sometimes it's hard to know which way is up. But in Christ, there is hope. And on today's Focus on the Family, Dr. Oz Guinness shares his observations of what's going on culturally and offers some encouragement as well. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. John, we are at a critical moment in American history, and it can be unsettling to say the least. But in the darkest of night, God's light often shines the brightest. And this is a real opportunity for us as Christians to be salt and light in the culture. A lot of people are looking for solutions in politics, but even though we have a civic duty to vote and involvement in government can be one part of influencing the culture for Christ, our citizenship is first in God's kingdom. Dr. Oz Guinness is a brilliant scholar and social critic, and he's devoted a lot of thought and study to the cultural chaos running rampant in America right now. I sat down with Oz for a great visit, and he provided an important history lesson and exposed the origins of critical theory and cultural Marxism, which explains much of what's happening in the country. Right, and Jim, the context for the conversation is a book by Dr. Oz Guinness called The Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. We recorded your conversation in Washington, D.C., in front of a small group of Focus friends. And uh, with that backdrop, here's Jim with Dr. Oz Guinness on Focus on the Family. Let's get into it, Oz. When you look at the culture today, uh, there is so much turbulence going on. Um, you spent the early years, your early years, in China, and we're going to get into that. But uh, how would you describe what's going on in the American culture today? As an observer, you're not a citizen, but you certainly have lived here many years, and you know American culture better than many Americans. Well, I'm a great admirer of this country, and above all, the distinctive view of freedom. But Jim, I think if you talk in a big framework, we're at what's called a civilizational moment. In other words, the Western world is at a crucial moment, but so also is America. You have a deeper division here than at any time since just before the Civil War. The difference is you had a Lincoln then who addressed the evil slavery in the light of what he called the better angel of the American nature and his great conviction about the Declaration. You don't have any leaders talking like that today. Hmm. So one president talks about restore the soul of America. Another talks about making America great again. But neither of them address what made America great in the first place? Well, that's a, a good follow-up question. I don't want to miss the opportunity. From your observation, uh, what is it that made America great? Well, my book's about the clash between the ideas coming from the American Revolution, which, through the Reformation, is rooted in the Torah. The 17th century was called the Biblical Century. And people were fascinated with what they called the Hebrew Republic. In other words, when the church became the official faith of the Roman Empire, 380, under the Emperor Theodosius, the church made a bad mistake. It copied Roman structures. Mm -hmm. Roman structures were hierarchical, based on power. 
And it was a Catholic layman who made the famous remark, you know, all power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But the reformers, Luther to some extent, but much more Calvin, Zwingli, Bullinger, Knox, they went back to the Torah. And of course, in the Torah, the heart of freedom is covenant. Hmm. And that became the American Constitution. So America knows much, much more to the first five books of the Bible than many Americans have a clue about. That, I mean, so you need to unpack that in detail. For example, many don't know that Constitution came from covenant, but equally the consent of the governed. If you read Exodus, the Lord puts out the covenant. Three times it says, the people reply, all that the Lord says we will do. That is the origin, historically, of the consent of the governed. And that's just the beginning. The best of the American experiment comes from that. The tragedy today, even this week, people talking about democracy. The framers weren't that interested in democracy. Now they that's called, a little shocking. They called it a republic. Right. Which didn't just mean you had no king. You had a covenantal view of freedom. Hmm. And who defends that today? Right. Let me ask you some of the things that are taking place today. When you look at uh, Marxism, you know, that's something that I think in the United States, historically, we've always been mindful of. Uh, you go back to McCarthyism and maybe an overzealous reaction at that time. I don't know. But what's happening with communism and Marxism specifically today? And is it present in the U.S.? Yes, but not the way many Americans fear. Okay. In other words, the ideas that come from the French Revolution. The French Revolution only lasted 10 years. And then came Napoleon. It's over, he said. He was a dictator. But like a huge volcanic explosion, the lava flow has gone on ever since. The main one everybody knows, which is revolutionary socialism, in one word, communism. In other words, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution. But what's happening here is actually the third lava flow, which is not classical Marxism, but cultural Marxism. And that goes back to the 1920s. And a gentleman called Antonio Gramsci sat in a jail under Mussolini. He was jailed for being a Marxist. But he tried to figure out why Marx wasn't right. There hadn't been a revolution as Marx predicted. He shifted it from the proletariat and industrial strikes and all that stuff to what he called the cultural gatekeepers and their dominance, or his word, hegemony. Hmm. He was picked up by the Frankfurt School for 30 years, the important being that in the 60s, the leader of the Frankfurt School in America was Herbert Marcuse at the University of San Diego. He was the godfather of the religious left. Uh, not the religious left, the, the radical left. In 1967... Well, that might be a good mistake. Religious <laughs> left does describe there, it. There is a religious yeah. left, too. That's different. He was the godfather radical left, the new left. In 68, 67, 68, he and a German radical called for a long march through the institutions. In other words, you remember, I first came here as a tourist in 68. Many of you will remember it somewhat. A hundred American cities were ablaze, far more than happened two years ago. Martin Luther King assassinated, Bobby Kennedy killed, but they still knew they wouldn't win in the streets. 
So the Long March was a detour. The schools, the colleges, the universities, the press, the media, what they call the entertainment industry, Hollywood, mm. and so on, the culture industry, and then sweep round and win the culture. Now, 50 years later, we can see they've done it. Absolutely. So for me, it was amazing. I mean, this last year, you take Governor Yunkin, greatly helped by CRT, Critical Race Theory, in Loudoun County. And Mama Bears. But many people <laughs> had no idea where that came from. Right. They blamed it on the Harvard Law School in 1970 and Derrick Bell. No, it goes right back to the 1920s. And it isn't just critical race. It's critical women's studies, critical queer studies, critical fat studies. It's behind Occupy Wall Street as well as Antifa and Black Lives Matter. There is a morphing, swarming, Soros-founded group of people who are just part of the radical left. Yeah, let me ask you this, uh, Oz, because it's critically important, I think. Uh, you, you grew up in China. As a little boy, I can remember you mentioned Bobby Kennedy. I remember I was seven years old when he was shot. I was watching the television. I can remember that so clearly. My mom had just left the room, and I'm watching him go back to the kitchen, and it's all on you know television. And I saw Sirhan Sirhan shoot him. It was part of that experience. Those even as a seven year old that was burnt into my mind, trying to comprehend what am I actually seeing. You had that same experience or a similar experience in China. With Mao, what what took place when you were seven, eight years old? Well, I was born there during the war, and you know the Japanese killed seventeen million in the invasion, and we lived in the city of Nanking, Nanjing today, which had suffered the brutal rape of Nanking, the most brutal massacre in the twentieth century. But I remember the day I begin the book when January forty nine, my dad said to me, "Son, we're in trouble." Chiang Kai-shek had just abandoned the city, and we're at the mercy of the Red Army. And three months later, they crossed the river, and in they came. And the reign of terror began. And they festooned the town, the city. And the reign of terror was palpable. My father was tried publicly, mm. but all the evidence just fell apart. But you could see, I mean, we met Christian friends and other friends in the street. They'd look right by you. It was more than their lives were worth to acknowledge they knew a Westerner. Mm. If we went out, there was an instant crowd, death to the blue-eyed foreign devils, and so on. Now, it's only important because many years later when I was at Oxford as a graduate student, my tutor was at All Souls, the cream of the cream of Oxford life, no students. And I would dine with Sir Isaiah Berlin, the great Jewish philosopher of freedom, and as we talked the first time at dinner, it turned out he'd been a seven-year-old in the Russian Revolution. Mm. And I was a seven-year-old, nearly eight-year-old in the Chinese Revolution and then lived there two years. And as we swapped notes, we both, as it were, thanked the Lord that the English-speaking people had stood against totalitarianism. But in discussion, nobody would have dreamed, this is the mid-1970s, Nobody would have dreamed that America would be affected by cultural Marxism or any Marxism because Americanism, the American dream, was always considered the substitute, the surrogate. America didn't need anything like that. And yet you see the inroads today. For the folks that may not spend much time thinking about this, what are those telltale signs that there is a socialistic, communist uh, 
vibe running through the country now. What is it? Well, you can see there's a lot of radio programs and television programs that keep you up to date with the latest scandal or latest outrage. I would encourage Christians to think deeper because the difference between the biblical revolution and the American one, sadly, wasn't fully consistent, take slavery and racism, but the difference between the Exodus, the Sinai revolution, and the French revolution as ideas is night and day. And we as followers of Jesus need to be defenders of the real thing. Mm. So they have different sources, one the Bible, the other in the Enlightenment. They have different views of humanity. The biblical view is very realistic. That's why you have separation of powers, because of the potential of the abuse of power. Whereas the French Revolution, utopian. But obviously the big difference this year is justice. Right. As I, as a foreigner, look at America now, what you're seeing is America's greatest evil, slavery and racism, meeting the establishment's greatest blind spot. They haven't a clue how to deal with this. Meeting the radical left's greatest fraud and disaster, meeting the gospel's greatest glory. But we've got to make that case in public. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. In light of the Supreme Court's recent decision on abortion, are you ready for what comes next? And how should we respond as emotions run high? As Christians, we need to be ready. Focus on the Family can help you prepare. Join us every Monday to hear inspiring stories from people who faced their own pro-life moments and experienced God's love. To learn more, go to FocusOnTheFamily.com slash moment. That's FocusOnTheFamily.com slash moment. Man, I knew my marriage was falling apart. I just didn't know how to fix it. I felt like I would always be alone, even if I stayed married. At Focus on the Family's Hope Restored Marriage Intensive, we offer hope to couples in crisis so they can have the marriage they've always dreamed of. For the first time, I felt like my husband truly heard me. I've received some great tools from the counselors that have changed my life and my marriage. To begin the journey of finding health, go to HopeRestored.com today. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. Let me touch on perhaps, you know, one of the most tender areas in the culture right now, especially over the last couple of years with Black Lives Matters and some of the grievances that they've expressed, et cetera. And then some pointed the fact that this too, the, the BLM movement to a degree is rooted in that identity politics and destruction and those kinds of things. This is very tender for people. I had uh, Shelby Steele on the program and he said some things that I even, you know, he's an African-American no, from Stanford that's university. Terrific. I was a little uncomfortable. I mean, he you was were. saying, if you look at it, he said, you know, the white community from 1965 forward, we should be thinking about a medal because they have made such advancement in uh, equality and opportunity, et cetera, across the board. You don't hear that. No. And he also talked about, you know, the writers of the Constitution, although they didn't accomplish it when they wrote the Constitution, slavery had already been a 3,000-year-old industry and that they provided the pathway for a 90-year solution that ended with Abraham Lincoln. Um, how do you square all these things? And how do we, 
I mean, well, how do we, living today, how do we deal with this? I, I've never been part of that. Um, I was born in Southern California, but at the same time, somehow, I'm very guilty of being white. No, you're not. <laughs> no, I'm Anglo-Irish, Jim. Our family, as I said, were friends and supporters of William Wilberforce. Mm -hmm. Lord Shaftesbury was a great friend the second greatest reformer in English history. He was a great friend of my great-grandfather's. In England, the evangelicals, no, they were on the side of abolition and a hundred other reforms. We are proud and grateful to be on the side of reform. Hmm. We have no bad guilt of any of that. Thank God for the Wilberforces. I've got his autograph behind me when I write. Here, because of the unaddressed residual guilt from the South, you know, Jakob Burkhardt, the Swiss historian, he said, what the radicals do is exploit what he called unaddressed explosive materials. In other words, when injustice is lying around and you don't address it, someone can exploit it. Hmm. Now, let's go back to the difference between the radical left and the gospel. We both agree that injustice is appalling, evil, egregious, vile, the killing of George Floyd. The difference comes in how you address it. The radical left, as you know, you analyze the discourse of a society to see who's the majority, who's the minority, who's the oppressor, who's the victim. So you find your victim and then you weaponize them. You're not interested in the victim as an individual, but as a group in order to subvert the status quo. Now, you remember with the radical left, God is dead. And truth is dead. This is postmodernism. So all you have is power. So what you're setting up is a conflict of powers. And there's always two things. One, a lack of mercy. The radical left is merciless. And two, a drive towards authoritarianism. Mm. The Romans called it the peace of despotism. In other words, the only peace you can hope to have is when a power is so unrivaled it can put down all other powers. That is totalitarianism. Now compare that with a Christian answer, and I'll use single words, and I know you can unpack each of them in an hour. Truth addressed to power, prophetic truth. And we have standards. People are made in the image of God. Truth is the reality of reality. Words are precious and not to be used, and so on. Truth addressed to power. Secondly, confession. Admission and confession. Thirdly, forgiveness. Forgiveness frees the past and frees the future. Fourthly, reconciliation rest. Now, unpack those Christian words. The tragedy for me, and I don't know if this makes sense, I go around the country now. Exodus, the Day of Atonement, and of course for us the cross, Calvary, has become spiritual and personal, all about me. But if you read Exodus, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is national. Mm. It was a response to the golden calf. The nation had sinned, so the individuals and the nation needed atonement. Now how does that apply to America? You remember renewal in the scripture, Hezekiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, many others, they're calling the nation back to its covenant commitments. Yeah, so you have a rededication. I wonder, could you have 
a Lincoln-like president today who knew enough about what America should be and was could call the nation back, as Lincoln did, Frederick Douglass did, Martin Luther King did, and call the nation back to its first principles, the American experiment rooted in the biblical republic. And then as part of that, nationally confess the sins that are wrong and then make a commitment to tackle any and every racism or whatever today. Mm. You need to do something like that where the cross and the Day of Atonement are made more than just individual and spiritual. And that is the right hope. At the same time, where is that leader? Right. Well, and you, I, you are a leader far well, bigger than, that's way than too I am. Kind. I mean, I got out of my way to try and make these, you know, when I'm talking I, last year to a table room of, of congressmen, eight of us at the table, and I was telling them about Lincoln. I said at the end, which of you at your level will be the Lincoln? Did anybody put their I hand up? I confess with that group, they all looked at each other. <laughs> right. No, I, and that's part of it. And I'm thinking specifically, you know, focus on the family. We're about moms and dads raising kids and helping yeah, them remember, stay together. Know, so that question is, when the Lord brings that person, hallelujah, what do we do in the meantime? But as you know, Jim, <laughs> leadership biblically is not just the people at the top or out in front. Leadership is the person who will take responsibility and initiative for whatever's right in front of them, an opportunity or a crisis. I mean, you take someone, then you, dear old Ananias. That's the only reference we have to Ananias. But what a part he had to play with Paul. Mm. Well, the Jews love someone that I'd never heard of till I heard them talking about it. Have you ever heard of Nashon? No. No? Nashon, in Jewish tradition, and they praise him, was the gentleman at the Red Sea, who put his foot in it first. <laughs> That's good. In other words, Moses <laughs> held out the rod. Yeah. The Lord sent the wind and all that, but everyone saw, you know, yeah, after I like you, that. mate, <laughs> Nashon strode out. Yeah. And Look. everyone followed him. In other words, leadership is everyone. You mentioned moms and dads. Think what Loudoun County did. Everyone at their level, their sphere, standing up, speaking out, if all of us do that together, the scandal of the American church, compare us with Britain or France or Sweden. We're a huge majority here. Maybe not where we were, still a huge majority. Take our Jewish friends. They're 2% of America, and yet they punch well above their weight. We're a huge majority, and we're called to be salt and light. So we've got to encourage you, if every Christian in the spheres in which they live, their neighborhoods and so on, their workplaces, stood up, spoke out, the country could be turned around in 10 years. Mm. Calling is God's strategic employment of his people. So in a practical way, if I were to say to Jean, my wife, and Trent and Troy, my two sons, here are two or three things that I think we should be doing as a practice within our family, what would you suggest? I'd have to sit down with your family. In other yeah. words, just as our Lord says to Peter, don't you worry about John, you follow me. In other words, every family, every individual is different. And as I think, I think that's what I'm trying to get at. What are the practical things that you can do within your home to you know, encourage yourself and your spouse to be thinking of these things, to impact the culture around you, to encourage your children to do the same? 
Um, you know, some kids go to school and they're little warriors spiritually. Mm-hmm. Others pull back because it's difficult in this culture, especially public school, where you don't talk about same-sex issues and you don't talk about life and abortion. You just keep your head down. And again, that's because of the pressure uh, that the culture puts on you to um, but we shame need to you. Equip them, Jim. Yeah, there's correct. several people here with, you know, being at UVA. And my son was a UVA, double graduate there. But he was telling me that sometimes new Christians who are faithful, it meant going, say, to the anthropology class, and in the very first class tell the professor, well, I'm a born-again believer, and I don't believe in evolution. Apologetically, that's not the way to do it. If you're up against it totally, you listen and love to discover where people are and raise questions. Our Lord was a brilliant question asker. Mm-hmm. So, so we've got to equip people to know how to do it. It's not just standing up and blurting it out all the time. Such great wisdom from Dr. Oz Guinness today on Focus on the Family. Uh, that was a recorded visit in Washington, D.C. We had a few focused friends there. And Jim, I so appreciate hearing Oz's confidence and hope in the Lord despite these troubling times we're experiencing. Uh, John, we need to be reminded uh, every day that God's got this. And as Christians, we need to be in prayer for revival in America, which begins in our own hearts. And it also begins with a recommitment to studying God's Word, allowing the Holy Spirit to inspire us in our interactions with others as we share God's truth and love. Those interactions may be in your own family, your neighborhood, a local school board meeting, or a city council meeting or in your church as you help to restore freedom and peace where you live. Uh, We are ambassadors for Christ, and if we're going to see the culture impacted for him, we need to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us. And we have some great follow-up resources to help you become equipped. We've only heard a small portion of the recorded conversation that Jim had with us. You can get the extended version on CD or as a download. And be sure to get the excellent book that Oz wrote called The Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. And let me say, if you can help us with a monthly pledge of any amount, we'd like to send you the book as our way of saying thank you. And if you're unable to make a monthly pledge at this time, we'll send the book for a one-time gift of any amount. The point is, join us in ministry, and we'll send you the book as our way of saying thanks. When you request the book from Focus, you're pouring back into ministry to reach people for Christ and help us impact the culture in exactly the way we've talked about today. So thank you in advance for doing it. Yeah, donate as you can. Get a copy of that book or the CD when you call 800, the letter A and the word family, 800-232-6459, or stop by focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. We're going to have helpful articles and follow-up materials there for you as well to keep you informed on issues affecting your family. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. You're listening to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We'll take a quick break here and then return with another faith-building program for your family. Stay tuned. 
One in five households cares for a child with special needs. Is yours one of them? If so, we know you want your child to be taken care of no matter what happens. If you want to secure your child's future by preparing a will but need extra guidance for your unique situation, Focus on the Family can help. Download our resource, 15 Questions to Ask If You Have a Child with Special Needs. It's our gift to you at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash Special Needs eBook. remember one night I was rocking him to sleep and I had done all the things I had fed him and changed him and he should have been happy in my arms and he wasn't and the answer had to come from something deeper that couldn't change it had to come from God and understanding his character his promises and really fighting to believe the things that I said I believe That's Jamie Finn talking about the hope that Jesus Christ gives us in our parenting journey. And she joins us today on Focus on the Family to talk about foster parenting and all of the trials and blessings that come with that. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly. Thanks for joining us. I'm John Fuller. John, I love this topic. I know not everyone is uh, capable or available to do foster parenting, but I'm telling you folks, uh, we're going to cover some territory today that needs to be covered. We have about oh, f- just over 400,000 kids in foster care in the United States. About 110,000 of those are available for adoption. And I, you know, when you look at the Christian church, I can't think of a field more ripe unto harvest than this one. Mm-hmm. And I, I uh, again, I just don't think we should have kids in foster care waiting uh, with the Christian church if it were active. And I'll just call it out there. And we're going to talk about this today. I remember Gene and I, I remember we talked about our program, Wait No More, which we started here at Focus, really because of my stint in foster yeah, care. Yeah, you, you charged us to get and, something you going. Know, so when we got that going, I got home and we had aired a program about people getting engaged and trying to call people into that space. And I remember I got home and Gene said, well, if you're going to ask others to do it, we should do it. And I said, well, wait a minute. I was the foster kid. I already did my time. <laughs> yeah. And she gave me that stink eye like, no, that's not going to cut it, you know. So we got certified. We probably over an eight-year period had 15, 16 kids through our home. And some of it was amazing and most of it was challenging. Mm-hmm. And that's part of it. But I'll tell you what, um, we know three of the kids who have accepted the Lord because of that engagement. Yeah. What is that worth? I'll leave that out there and let it hang. And today we're going to talk about and challenge you to do what James 127 says, which is to care for orphans and widows in their distress. Doesn't get any clearer than that, everybody. And I'm excited about the topic. Yeah, there's something that we can all do. Each and every one of us can do something in this journey. And we've invited Jamie Finn here to talk about just what we can do. Uh, Jamie is a foster parent, a speaker, founder of um, what I'm told is the largest online support group for foster parents. It's called Foster the Family. Yay! And uh, is the author of a book called Foster the Family, Encouragement, Hope, and Practical Help for the Christian Foster Parent. Stop by focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast or give us a call for your copy. 800, the letter A in the word family. Jamie, welcome to Focus on the Family. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. It's one of those first-time things, yeah, right? It's yeah, it's exciting. This is great. So... I've seen it, I've listened, and now I'm here. <laughs> yeah. That's sweet. Thanks yeah. for listening. You're a young mom, right? I am, but I I love your heart for foster care. and Well, and, and I love your heart for foster care, too. Let's start with the angelic music. Roll the music. Ah. 
paint a picture for uh, us about you and Alan's relationship before foster care, <laughs> when everything was simple. Yeah, simple oh. and average, you know, and that's what mm. we were pursuing, this average American life where we had one boy, one girl, we were working and, and doing sort of normal life. And I... Which is good. Yeah, it is good. And (laughs) we felt a conviction that there was so much more than just the American dream. And how how did you start fostering then? What was the spark? Which one of you, Alan or you, came home and said, "Okay, Alan"? It was me, and and I've learned since that that is the common experience of ninety five percent of foster parents. Exactly. If we're going to tell people to do it, we better do it. Wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and my husband had adopted sisters. It was something that we kind of always talked about in a maybe one day sort of way. Mm -hmm. Let's camp there for a second because it's such a normal reaction to say when this is in place, when our kids are. I mean, that is kind of normal to think, when is the best time? Yeah, sure. Yeah, there is, you know, the ducks in the row sort of way of looking at it. And I think it's important that we're prepared, but there's also nothing that can prepare you. Right. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. Yeah, So so for us, it was a step of faith. And for me, it was an act of passion. Mm -hmm. I wanted to follow God into this. For Alan, it was sacrificial obedience. It was being compelled by God's word that God was calling us to do something for the widow and orphan as you shared that verse. I'm thinking of that in a sporting event kind of (laughs) context. Uh, You have passion meeting sacrifice. That sounds like conflict. Well, and there wasn't conflict. I'll say there was pleading on my part. Yeah. (laughs) There was a pleading of here's the need, here are the stories. And then I realized, oh, my husband is a man of conviction. And if I ask him to go to God's word, he's going to find there this clear calling. And that clear calling isn't that everyone become a foster and adoptive parent, but there's a clear calling that we are stepping in to the vulnerable and the broken, the lost. When we see the most vulnerable population, we go right to foster children, children who need to be adopted. But there's also this community of struggling families who we may be able to keep children out of foster care. And so it's not as simple as become a foster parent. For some families, it might be welcome a family into your home for dinner or bring groceries to that single mom or help in some way a family who's struggling, yeah. not just jumping in after the state has already gotten involved. Right. And that's great. Those are good things to do. And we're going to wrap the program at the end here with some other things people can do. So remember those and we'll bring them back once again. But let, let's let uh, speak to the challenges that exist. And I think, you know, we have a program called Wait No More mm-hmm. and it's pointed at uh, church members, yeah. you know, um, the big C church. What do we do uh, to engage people? And so we work with local churches to set a a time that people can come and learn more. And there's agencies there. They can get fingerprinted. They could start the process, all those good things. But one of the things I'm proud of the team for doing is they do talk about the challenges. These Mm -hmm. kids come with a lot of emotional, sometimes physical issues, Mm -hmm. and you have to be prepared. There's no box that says normal. Mm -hmm. And when you qualify your home for a foster situation, you do check boxes of what types of kids, um, emotionally, spiritually, physically, you're able to manage. Mm -hmm. And it is a weird experience to go through that head knocking 
um, hoard, food hoarding. Yeah. I mean, you're sitting there going, wow, these kids, they have gone through so much trauma yeah. that they have issues. Yeah, and that has been what we've come to learn. I think we started off with let's welcome one baby one time. And part of the idea of a baby was we'll get a child who's good as new, a clean slate. Mm. And that was sort of the way we came into it. And what we've learned since is that trauma is a part of every single child who has entered the foster care system. Even prenatal. Prenatal, absolutely. So we've had kids come to us from the hospital who've been exposed to drugs, alcohol, chronic stress in utero in a way that has affected them and will affect them for the rest of their lives. I remember, uh, you know, of the 15 kids or so, we had two sets of siblings Mm -hmm. for extended period of times. And the second set was a brother and sister. And I remember the first morning I woke up, what do you want for breakfast? I'll have a bowl of cereal. He was like two years old. And so I made him cereal. And then he said, could I have some toast? Oh yeah. Made him toast. Got some eggs, eggs. I mean, within about 10 minutes, there was this mound of food that no way he was going to eat that. But it was like his fear. He had food insecurity. And he, every morning for about a month, Mm. it went this way, where he would just ask, can I have more? Can I have more? And I just wanted to prove to him it's all available. You don't have to worry. But it took about a month. Well, and you could have said that over and over. There's enough food for you ever. It's not logic. But his brain and body needed to learn that food would show up. So that's part of it. Um, You were challenged by a commencement speech involving, I think, a dollar. (laughs) What happened there? And how does it relate to foster care? A buck. Yeah. I went to my best friend's graduation and the speech was, here's a dollar. This is your life. You get to spend it once. And that has been a driving force for me through my life. How did it speak to you though, specifically? Really believing that this life is something that we are going to spend up that will matter for eternity. And I just so want, even as, you know, a 13 year old that was put in my heart, of I just want the way I spend my days to matter mm. in eternity. That really does get to that scripture in James. Mm. You know, this is pure religion. Yeah. This is your pure dollar. Right, right. <laughs> wow. Mm. You had an original plan for fostering that wasn't necessarily what it should have been, I guess, is the way it was described. You know, Gene and I struggle with having that original plan. Yeah. One of the things I was really impressed by, the parent training that you receive in the foster programs. Typically, I can only speak to Colorado. Yeah, I'm glad that's your experience. No, it's really good. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, I thought every parent mm. should get this kind of training about how to raise a child. Mm. And I'm not talking about the spiritual elements. It was just very practical about temperament and anger and how to embrace your child with love. Yeah. I mean, those these are common themes, right? I think every parent wants that. And every foster parent uh, desires to express that to these kids. But describe your process of wanting to protect those foster kids from their parents. Yeah, I came in with a very naive at best, and I would say arrogant and sort of savior complex of these kids have been in these homes with these... These horrible homes. Yeah, these horrible homes with these abusive addicts who hurt them and... And that was the mindset I came in with. And I am so grateful that God rescued me from that. What does it sound like in a better way? Because some of that is real. You're sitting there going, why would you put this two-year-old through this? The, I mean, the things our kids have gone through 
it, they're heartbreaking. A lot of drugs. Drug it's, addiction is big in foster. And it's, yeah, it's devastating to see the way it affects the kids that we love. But yeah. I think what God did in my heart was just the verse, what do you have that you have not received? And that went deep into my mm. soul of who I am is only a gift of God, only the gifts that he's given me in both my family and support system and healthy childhood, but also just in the resources and strength and grace that he's given me. And yeah. I began to view my kids' parents very differently through a lens of compassion and empathy. Well, that's so good. Mm -hmm. um, you have a story where you became very fearful because a little boy, I think you may have changed their names like we all do, we but did. you named them Mikey, was placed in your home what what happened with Mikey he was three months old when he came to us and he had already been in five homes because yeah. he was struggling <laughs> he was a hard baby yeah. who had been through a lot of hard things and so he was having a hard time and was spending a lot of his time crying and a lot of his time in my arms and I got to know his mom and I knew how deeply she was struggling and I remember one night I was rocking him to sleep and I had done all the things. I had fed him and changed him and he should have been happy in my arms and he wasn't. And fear came into my heart of just, how is she gonna do this? And I was consumed with this idea that she would not be able to keep him safe. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah. it, the answer couldn't come in her ability because I knew her enough to know how it would be a struggle. The answer had to come from something deeper that couldn't change. It had to come from God and understanding his character, his promises, and really fighting to believe the things that I said I believed. Yeah, I mean, the, the truth is, and what we believe as Christians, there's only one entity's promises that are actually true and always kept and that's God's mm. right through Jesus yeah. and so that's a good thing to remember right. I know that as an orphan kid you know mm. people it's hard to trust people mm. um, you learn over time hopefully to mm. trust people again but these poor foster kids that trust has been broken in so many ways yeah that that's one of the restorations that we in the Christian community need to provide. Yeah, and part of that is going to be in their spirit and heart, and part of it is going to be in their brains and bodies. Yeah, yeah, and recognizing that's critical. Yeah. Uh, Jamie, you mentioned something I want to hit uh, for the listener and the viewer right now. In the Wait No More program, we're doing something that yeah, we kicked around for a while, but we are really launching it in a big way right now, that Mikey having five homes often what happens with these foster children is they get their things thrown into a hefty garbage bag and they drag that garbage bag to the next house. That's all they have. So one of the things to bring dignity to these kids that we're trying to do is do a suitcase with a Bible and a teddy bear. Mm. And we have more demand than we have ability to deliver that. And we just sent, I think we had 2,000 distributed in the state of Florida. And we'd love to, again, equip you know 400,000 kids uh, with those suitcases, Bible, and teddy bears. So if you want to join in that with us, it's $100 to do that. And uh, you can do a one-time gift of $100 or do $25 a month. And that over a year, you'll supply three suitcases to mm -hmm. these kids. But it's one of the small ways to us, but big ways to them that they have a sense of dignity. These kids will get that suitcase, that teddy bear, and that Bible. And uh, what an amazing way to help buttress them spiritually, physically, emotionally. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. 
Hi, I'm Jim Daly. The Supreme Court will soon make a significant decision on abortion. How will this impact you? Join me and other pro-life champions, including Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens, on June 14th for Focus on the Families, Sea Life 2022 live stream. Find out how you can respond to this important pro-life moment. Sign up at focusonthefamily.com slash life. That's focusonthefamily.com slash life. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. Uh, Jamie, when you had your first biological daughter, uh, you had some health complications that kind of tested that idea that you're in control of your environment. Oh my goodness, Gene, very similar. I mean, just, and I think it's a great mom attribute. I want to control safety, sure. everything, what they learn, what they eat. Sure. And guess what? You can't control that much. Yeah. Yeah. I had a perfect birth plan. We were going <laughs> to go to a birth center and everything was going to be perfect. Yes. And a day before my due date, I started having stroke-like symptoms. Oh, my. I lost control of half my body and my mm. face was drooping and I was airlifted to the local hospital. And in a moment, my plans were gone. And it was my oh trial my. by fire, yeah. my welcoming to motherhood, that I wasn't going to be able to control anything. Wow. And then we became foster parents right. and really learned yeah. that we are not in control of anything. It does. It can knock. Let me say it this way. It'll knock sense into you. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. You know, you think, all of us as parents think we can kind of control right. things. No parent is in control. No. no. And, that, you know, the Lord chose to give us free will. And it definitely comes out in those you know, little children. Sure. <laughs> At one point, you came to a breaking point, is what you wrote in the book, because a little girl you wanted to adopt was pulled away right at the last minute. I would say, you know, again, in that context, when you're looking to adopt out of foster care, you got to buttress your heart because there's a lot of bumpy roads. Yeah, and the reality is that the foster care system has one goal that the court system and the workers are aligned to, and that is reunification until reunification can't happen. And so I think it's important that people understand when they're entering that system that their hearts and their goals Mm -hmm. need to stay aligned to what the goal of the system is. And that is not just what the state says, but I also believe it is in union with God's heart for healing and restoration for something that he created to be made whole again. What happened in that situation with the daughter? What were the bumpy roads like for you and your husband, Alan? So we said goodbye to our daughter after two and a half years. So you had her two and a half years. So that's part of the bumpiness. Mm -hmm. How old was she at that point? She came to us at three months old. Wow. And she had spent her whole little life with us. And to say that it was heartbreaking and traumatic is... So you planned on adopting her and some paperwork went crazy. I mean, it's, this is ridiculous. When I heard the story, I was like, what? Yeah. Well, what happened was COVID. And so the, everyone got extra time and I'll be honest at first I thought, well, this just stole our daughter from us and ruined our lives. And by God's grace, he changed my perspective to 
this gave her mom enough time to finally get clean uh, okay, and healthy. Okay, so she was she went back with her bio mom. She did. Wow, she that's went a back great to her thing. biological mother. Yeah. And it was 18 months of her mom struggling and they changed the goal to adoption and then we were we were happy to go there, but the goal changed when her mom's health and ability changed and it was a test of what do we really believe about the family not just about trusting god but about his design for the family and his commitment to restoration and healing and she's with her mother and they're great yeah and that's a good outcome sometimes there's chaos in that reunification too Mm -hmm. we had that experience Mm -hmm. with two kids who went back with the parents and the mom overdosed And the grandparents weren't in a position to do anything. They called the dad who's in rehab, who then calls us and says, can you take the kids? Hmm. And we're like, definitely we'll take them back. But what happened? And, you know, that happens too. It does. Um, And she just could not beat the drug addiction. And finally it took her life. And, you know, that is just really sad. Um, Describe the idea. I mean, this is really interesting. And it's a great metaphor where your, your husband, Alan, was laying next to uh, bed looking under the bed you walked in the room what was going on in yeah there? I walked into our foster child's room and I saw him reaching under the bed and I was like do you need something what's going on and I realized he was reaching under the bed holding the hand of one of our foster children mm. and she had a tendency to when she was afraid go hide, hide. Yeah. and we would find her in cabinets and in corners and under the bed and it was a picture for me of my fixitness, my mm-hmm. let me come in and make this right, let's talk about it. And my husband's bent towards just being with her, just mm-hmm. being present and empathetic and letting her know that he was going to be there with her. And yeah. it just created a beautiful image for me of what it looks like to, you know, we say, Weep with those who weep, lie under the bed with those who lie under the bed. You know, one of the, being in foster care when Mm -hmm. I was nine and 10, I can, you know, those memories are scorched into my mind. It wasn't a great experience. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a real healthy, functional Mm -hmm. family that I was with. And I don't want to go into all of that. But the point I wanted to make is a child's heart, their emotional lips are so parched Mm -hmm. that just those little actions of your husband tears me up just reaching mm-hmm. in under the bed mm-hmm. that's something that girl will remember forever mm-hmm. and i presence. think you know we don't even understand it's a little action that in a healthy context yeah maybe the kids sure. won't remember that because there's so many other good things sure. that they're going to know but speaking to the child calmly running your fingers through their hair gently mm-hmm. assuring them that they're loved mm-hmm. those are all things with parched souls Mm. that make such a difference Mm. and that's what's so beautiful Mm. yeah it's it's really also a picture for me of god's heart for these kids watching my husband with his foster children just reminds me of god's heart for them and it's beautiful to be able to watch that and probably it reinforces why you married him (laughs) well yeah and it's it's right it's encouraging for me because 
he didn't want to do this. Yeah. You know, you ask him when he wanted to become a foster parent. He says never, but yeah. he did it out of obedience and God has, has shaped him into this compassionate yeah. man. Yeah. Jamie, we said at the beginning, we wanted to come back to practical things people can do. Let's end there. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously getting engaged in the foster program in your state, it's a process. You got to get your home qualified. They come and inspect it. And each state is slightly different and it feels intrusive. But keeping your eye on the big prize of being engaged at that level uh, is what it's all about. It's for the kids. And even with all the state requirements and you know policies and regulations, just plow through it. Honor those in authority over you and get in there and start doing the work God's called you to do. Mm-hmm. Now, there's other things families can do. What have you learned that really benefits a foster family or a foster adoption family? Yeah. Well, you shared Wait No More's initiative. There are... There are ways like that where we can take the resources that we've been given and share them with others. And money is one of our resources. Another one of our resources is our time, our energy, our relationships. And as a foster parent, one of the most meaningful things to me has been people who are willing to be in the trenches with us, who are willing to listen to the the stress and the heartache mm-hmm. and speak truth in God's word to us when we're struggling to trust him. So that has been meaningful, just friendships, but then also the ways that people come and serve us, the ways that people will bring meals or take out one of our kids or, you know, bring a a child to the babysitter or something like that. Those practical ways of we are sort of on the front lines of this and the people in our lives have said, we want to support you as you as this is your mission, our mission is to stand with you yeah, and, and support so, you. Yeah, it's so, so good. Some of the research that we've seen is if you have five families that come around a foster family or a foster adoption family, that can just help them do the grocery shopping once in a while, maybe do the laundry for them, come yeah. over, do the yard work, maybe clean up the house, whatever you can do to support. If you've got five families in your corner it actually becomes a very successful mm-hmm. situation. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing to do. I'd encourage churches, and don't go to the pastor and say, Pastor, can you do this? Do it yourself yeah. within the church. Don't yeah. ask him to do it. Mm-hmm. But just volunteer to lead a foster adoption support group that your church can lean on. Uh, Jamie, thank you for this wonderful book, Foster the Family. What a great call. I'm in your corner. Thank Let us know you. what we could do for you. <laughs> thank you. And I would really want to turn to the listener, the viewer, to encourage you to look at this. Go to the website, fosterthefamilybook.com, and get more of the ideas. Even better, order the book through Focus on the Family, and uh, all those proceeds we can put right back into ministry. And I hope you'll do that as well. If you can support us on a monthly basis, that's great. And we'll send you a copy of the book as our way of saying thank you when you do. One-time gift is good as well. Mm -hmm. So just be part of the ministry and let's do this. Yeah, and any gift you can make today will be greatly appreciated. And as Jim said, we'll put that to work right away. Our number is 800, the letter A in the word family. And further details are at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. Um, when you get in touch, ask about Wait No More and how you can support uh, our effort to come alongside these families, activate them uh, on behalf of foster care kids. Again, our number, 800, the letter A, and the word family. And John, let's again remind folks they can support the suitcase program mm-hmm. where we provide a suitcase, a teddy bear, and a Bible yes. to these foster kids. So jump in and do that. Gene and I do that. I hope you'll help us. And Jamie, again, thank you for your heart, you and Alan, for what you are showing 
others to do and what's possible. I so appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once more help you and your family thrive in Christ.